Hey lady, it's Dr. Dom here. If you like this show and you want to make your own, let me tell you about the free platform Anchor. It's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. You can add songs from Spotify and create any type of content that you are looking for. Anchor will distribute it all for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. On this week's episode of Cultivating Her Space. Always be moving towards your goal, not what other people tell you is the goal, because they don't know you, right? And the universe put a seed in you, right? You, Miss Terry, have a seed. You, Dr. Dom, have a seed. That seed is in you. It's yours. And you have a responsibility, I think, on this planet to water, nurture, and make that seed grow. So that's what I would say to people. Don't ever let people tell you what you're supposed to be doing because they don't know you. Today's episode is sure to provide you with motivation, inspiration, or a fresh perspective. If you have any aha moments or appreciate anything from this episode, please leave us a review to let us know we're on the right track. Also, we release episodes every Friday, so be sure to subscribe on iTunes and visit cultivatingherspace.com to access our exclusive after show and other bonus content from the Patreon tab. Welcome to Cultivating Her Space, a podcast dedicated to uplifting women like you. We're your hosts, Dr. Dominique Broussard, a college professor and psychologist, and Terry Lomax, a techie and motivational speaker. In a world where Black women are often misrepresented and misunderstood, please join us as we initiate authentic conversations on everything from fibroids to fake friends and create a safe space where Black women can just be. Hey lady, it's Dr. Dom here from the Cultivating Her Space podcast. Do you have a burning question you're dying to get feedback on? Do you want an unbiased perspective on a situation you're facing? If so, visit cultivatingherspace.com and click Ask Dr. Dom under the Start Here option. Every Tuesday, I'll choose a few questions and answer them at random. All right, lady, get ready, get ready. Now, Dom and I were talking and we are so surprised that we have not covered this topic on the podcast before. But let's go ahead and tell you a bit about our special guest today, and then we're going to jump right on in, all right? Dr. Alfie Breland Noble is a pioneering psychologist, scientist, media personality, author, and speaker. As founder of the mental health nonprofit, The Acoma Project, Inc., she translates complex scientific concepts into useful, everyday language for communities of color. A sought-after mental health expert, Dr. Alfie's media work includes hosting her new video podcast, Couched in Color with Dr. Alfie, addressing mental health issues in youth, young adults, and marginalized communities. She regularly appears on media platforms including CNN, NBC, Refinery29, Shape Magazine, Roland Martin Unfiltered, Avera Martin Special Report, NPR, and many more. Dr. Alfie, welcome to Cultivating Her Space. Thank you, Dr. Dom. And I'm so sorry. I just like, it's late and I'm kind of excited and I never get nervous. 
But I don't know, for whatever reason, I'm a little nervous. So, Miss Terry, you got to forgive me. But it's wonderful to be here with you both. It is okay. We appreciate your honesty and transparency. We're happy you're here. And we're about to just have a conversation. So by the time this is over, you'll be good. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. Yes, we we are so excited to have you in this space with us today. And so we are going to jump in with our quote of the day, which Dr. Alfie, I'm sure will sound familiar to you because, you know, we just we stalked your Twitter page and and, and found something out of all of the amazing things that you put out there. If we stopped saying we know what works because We actually don't from the way we traditionally science and started asking what works for you, then build together from that shared understanding. Then we'd see some real positive changes. Dr. Alfie, we chose that quote because we thought that it was so fitting for our conversation tonight around addressing mental health in young adults, but particularly mental health in black and brown young adults. So as you were hearing your words reflected back to you, can you tell us, you know, what came up for you, but then also what inspired that particular quote? So when you started reading, I'm thinking, oh, Lord, what did I say? Because I've been putting a lot of stuff on Twitter. And I have to laugh at myself because, you know, as I've aged and let me say that or matured, I get I get less and less censored. I feel less and less desire to censor myself because I've been in this space for at this point over 20 years. And yes, I started when I was 10. Ha ha. But in any event, <laughs> what I've learned is that we have this bad habit of saying and I, when I say we, I'm talking about all of us who come from the academic space. And I for full disclosure. I consider myself and I joke a lot about being a recovering academic because for those of us who are black and brown and and find ourselves in these academic spaces, I don't know if I've met too many folks who are black and brown, who are of color, who have any kind of marginalized identity, who have said that these academic spaces, traditionally speaking, are non-toxic. And I'm honest when I talk about these being, I come from the tradition of HBCU, so I was trained at Howard University, HU, you know, a few years behind Vice President Kamala Harris. And, you know, that was a safe haven for me. In all honesty, it wasn't perfect, but it was a safe haven. I never worried about who I was as a Black person. I didn't even really think about it. My eyes just got open to the beauty and the diversity of the African diaspora. I just, it was wonderful. But then I have degrees from three predominantly white institutions. And so my point is, is that those spaces are toxic often. I can think of one that's not, but for the most part, they are. And so when I'm speaking to that quote, what I'm speaking to is those of us who work in mental health disparities, research or clinical care or policy, who are trying to make things better. But you often run into folks who will say stuff like, oh, well, we already know what works. We don't need to test a new depression intervention. We don't need a new anxiety intervention. And I'm always coming back to, but do you really know what works? Because if you knew what worked, we wouldn't have disparities, right? So we don't tell the truth and shame the devil. So you don't know what works. And so I want us to really get be honest and have gotten really bold about saying, no, you don't know what works. You know what works for one segment of the population under one set of circumstances. We want to know what's going to work for a wider range for all of our kids. So that's where that comes from. 
Um, that is so incredible. And I will say, Dr. Alfie, we've had other doctors and psychologists on our show. And I noticed that when Dom and those professionals speak, there's often the same the same tune of these environments be toxic as hell. And I'm like, wow. I mean, I can only imagine what it takes to be a professional of color. You probably sometimes already have so much against you. And then you go into these workspaces, you're trying to make a difference in your community. And you're like, God damn, I got to put up with the toxicity here. So can you just tell us like, what was your journey like and what led you to becoming a psychologist? Before we dive into all the great content and the gems we're going to get into, what even inspired you to do this 20 years ago when you were 10 years old? <laughs> Girl, I love y'all already, girl. You good. Miss Terry, you good. We friends. So for me, it's really about a group. Long story short, I've told this story before, so I'm like sort of sensitive to, I feel like I'm being redundant. So let me say that. But basically, in a nutshell, I grew up in Virginia Beach, Virginia, which was at the time a very white area. And probably 10 to 15% of my high school was literally was black kids. Another 15 to 20% was Filipino kids. And I tell everybody, I did not say Asian, I said Filipino, because it was really specifically that population, primarily because of the large naval base in Norfolk and, you know, just the history of a lot of Filipino people joining the Navy, coming to the mainland and, you know, just building their lives in that way. So in that environment, it was hard to be a high achieving Black or Filipino kid. And literally there was a handful of us who were all in advanced classes. And that was my experience. So trying to navigate those spaces was stressful because you were never, you know, you know, I mean, well, I'm going to tell the truth about myself. I'm a Gen Xer. And so in those days, it was sort of there was this thing about, you know, being black enough or you ain't black enough. And I'm like real chocolate. People can't see me, but I'm nice and chocolate brown. So it's really not a question when you look at me as to whether or not I'm black. But it, it was just a at times a really difficult experience. And so I always felt like there had to be somebody who could help kids like me and the other kids who were in my circle navigate these spaces. And that's really what put me on the path. And then I had a godmother. I still have a godmother, Dr. Mona Thornton, who has a PhD, I'm sorry, an EDD in early childhood development from UMass Amherst. And she has a very famous mentor who everybody in the child development space knows. Her name is, her name is Dr. Vonnie McLeod. And you know, those were the people who were like, well, Alfie, I think you could do like you love children because at one time I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician, but it was really more about I wanted to have the connection with the kids. So it almost didn't matter sort of what that role was going to be. I just wanted to do be a support to children. And lo and behold, I found myself drawn to psychology. Again, going back to my childhood experiences, and I happen to have two very loving, wonderful, kind, open parents. My mom's deceased, but she was one of the people who you literally literally could go to mama and tell her anything, and she would just love on you. And so I wanted to be that for young people. And psychology really ended up feeling like the best place for me to develop the skill set to be able to help young. And my passion has always been all children, but a particular passion for children of color, teenagers, and it's grown over the years to include young adults. So that really was how I got on that path, was having the right mentors and sponsors and people who supported me and said, we see you in this space. And I was able to start seeing myself in that space. So that's what really what my journey was. Wow, that is a beautiful journey. And I think it's also kind of similar to a lot of folks that when I think about other psychologists that I talk to and my classmates and, you know, I think about 
particularly for those of us who are black identified, like that is a huge piece of what got us into this field, right? You know, a true desire to want to make a difference in the mental health of young black and brown kids or young black and brown folks in general. Yep, I agree. Definitely. And that's what it was for me too. Just, you know, you, your mirrors, you're always, I have a friend named Dr. David Rivera. He's Latino. And I heard him say once, I've never forgotten it. We're all searching for those mirrors. You want to see, they don't have to look exactly like you, but you want to see yourself in them. And so for me, so often in all the workspaces I've been, it's not just the black kids who come seek me out, like the black young people, particularly in the college setting. It's literally, when you look at my research lab that I had before I turned it into a nonprofit, it was all kind of young people, right? Like I've had Arab, many young people work for me, Latinx young people, Asian, even the diversity of the black population. One of my favorite pictures is a picture of me, four black women, women and an Asian American woman. And the story is literally every single one of those black women in the picture is from a different place. There were two Caribbean black women. One was black Latinx. One was black African immigrant. And it was me who, you know, defined or I define myself as more traditionally what we think of as African-American people with who are the descendants of those who were kidnapped and enslaved in the United States. And so I think we all go to it. We're all drawn to it. for Some of those same reasons you want to see people you feel like can understand your experience. And we come from these spaces where we're so isolated and people don't even act like they want to pretend like they want you in them spaces, right? They are like actively hostile. And so I always said, you know, when people come into my space, you know, people can see the room. I have like all kinds of nice sayings and encouragement because that's what I needed. I needed to walk into somebody's office and, and feel like, whew, Child, let me breathe. I can breathe. And, you know, once I left Howard, I hate to say it, it, them spaces didn't exist. Even throughout my early stages of my professional career, it just didn't exist. And so I felt like I need to help create that. And that's really what the Acoma Project is about, trying to create those spaces. One thing I definitely want to dive into based on what you just said, because that is so powerful. I'm thinking about people that are listening that want to get into this field. Maybe they have the same desire that you and Dom had. And like, I want to give back. I want to be able to be that mirror for someone else. Are there any words of wisdom that you could offer to someone who's on that journey where they are pursuing a career in psychology to give back? And it's tough for them because they may be in a toxic environment, but they also, you know, they paid this money and they got to get this, this degree and these credentials. So like, what advice would you give to those folks that are in that space now? It's a wonderful question, Ms. Terry. And so part of it is I really rest my hat on you treat other people the way you want to be treated, the way you want to be treated. And if you start there, I had this wonderful mentor when I was, I don't know, or kind of early on in my career. It's a Latina sister who grew up on the South Side of Chicago. And her name will come to me in a minute. But she's the person who taught me to seek first to understand, then to be understood. And you know, Nellie, her name is Dr. Nellie McNeil. McNeely, I'm sorry, Dr. McNeely. Maya McNeely, Lord have mercy. Dr. Maya McNeely. And this is when I was faculty at Duke. And she was a person who really opened my eyes to this idea of if a space is toxic, you don't have a responsibility to stay there. So I talk about often how at the time, 
I was in a really toxic work environment. I mean, toxic. Like I was having to get up in the morning. And this is one of the things I would say to people and prepare myself to go in and do battle. So I would sit and meditate. And I, this is when my kids were small. I had both of my children when I worked at this academic institution. And I would get up in the morning at 5 a.m. before everybody was awake. And I would meditate for like 45 minutes, just like complete silence. Because I needed to arm myself to go into a really hostile environment. And looking back on it, what I wish I had done was really figured out how could I get the heck up out of there. You know what I mean? Like we weren't independently wealthy. We still are not. But what could I have planned? for getting out of there. And I think what we don't tell young people enough is you get in these settings and we allow people to convince us that this is the only path to success. No, you got to stay at such and such institution because it's a research one university and you know, or it's a teaching institution and you really want to be at a teaching institution. And this is the only way you're ever going to be successful. No, it's not. Right. And so it's figuring out what's your North star. So it's self-care, taking care of yourself first, what is your North Star? What do you want to do? And I had a girlfriend, she's an Emmy Award winning producer. And she told me this and it made, and I just burst into tears. And this was when I decided to leave and take the Acoma Project, which is my research lab, out of psychiatry and make it a nonprofit. She said, look, Alfie, we were sitting in a cafe in DC. And she, like she knows, I tell this story all the time. Her name is Nikki Weber Allen. And Nikki said, Alfie, the academic is in you. The academic that you are does not reside in that institution. And like, I feel myself getting choked up now. She was like, baby, you got that knowledge and nobody's going to take it from you. And she gave me permission. That's, it still makes me emotional. She gave me permission to acknowledge and embrace. I worked to get that knowledge. They didn't give me nothing. If anything, they fought me while I was trying to get it. And so that's what I want young people to know. That if you have a North Star that says, I want to help these young people out here, black and brown young folks, or I want to help people who are immigrants like me, or I want to help queer LGBTQ folks who are like me, whatever their race is, that's your North Star. And that's the thing that you're working towards. So if you have to be in a temporarily hostile place to get there, get your supports, you know, make your supports national. They're not all going to be right there where you are. They might not physically be with you, but use your FaceTime, use your Zoom, use whatever you need to use to build your tribe. Hold on to that tribe with dear life. Maybe try to find you one safe person in that toxic environment that you can talk to and lean on. Practice self-care and move towards your goal. Always be moving towards your goal, not what other people tell you is the goal because they don't know you, right? And the universe put a seed in you, right? You, Miss Terry, have a seed. You, Dr. Dom, have a seed. That seed is in you. It's yours. And you have a responsibility, I think, on this planet to water, nurture, and make that seed grow. So that's what I would say to people. Don't ever let people tell you what you're supposed to be doing because they don't know you. Where the tissues at, Dom? Right, right. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. Dr. Alfie, like we just need to have you on all the time and just <laughs> have you just drop the gems all the time. Like that was just so powerful. And so I know that you are having just in these few moments with us, just the impact that you are having on us. I can only imagine the immense impact that you are having on the young people that you work with. And so I want to shift a little bit to 
talk more about the young people that you work with. Because I think that some of the things that you brought up that like we might experience as we're going through academia, the young people are experiencing those similar things. But also because we're currently in a pandemic, they're experiencing things on a much different, unexpected level. And so can you talk to us about what are some of the things that you are noticing amongst young people right now in terms of their mental health? Of course, it's a wonderful question, Doc. So for me, some of the things that I see are the kids who are struggling, you know, immensely with their identity in part was supported when they went to school, right? Not always, but for maybe for kids who are out, who are queer, LGBTQ, school might have been a safe place because they had that little core group, two or three friends who were comfortable with who they are, right? Who accepted them for who they are. And maybe they didn't have that at home, right? And and so I'm not going to label it by a racial ethnic group because any queer LGBTQ kid is probably dealing with some level of that, whatever their whatever community they come from. And so there's some of that, the isolation that comes from honestly having to go back into the closet because that's the only way you're really physically and emotionally going to be safe, so to speak, in relationship to your family members. The same same is true for college students. I think as well, it's really important to acknowledge that for some of our young people, their emotional and mental health supports, right? Professional supports were really coming from what they were getting at school. Some, not all, right? Because, you know, I have to be honest, I come from a family of educators. My my great-great-grandmother, she was a teacher, as was her daughter, her daughter, and her daughter. So including me when I was a professor and all the four women before me, four generations back, I'm fifth generation basically a teacher, although that's not how I identify, but I did teach. So, you know, I know that for some children, you know, they don't have the social support that they were getting from the few people that were at school. For other young people, there's that real strong sense of isolation. I'm thinking about a couple of patients I had that I was seeing virtually who, and because of the pandemic, there's no physical contact. All you can do is, you know, you can't hug your friends, you can't dap them up, like you can't do any of that stuff because you physically really shouldn't be touching them. So that's the struggle. And then I think another one that people don't really think about a lot for a lot of Black and Latinx folks, not all by any means, but when you think about both aspects of the diaspora, a lot of us who are of color get social support from going to faith communities, right? And I don't think people think about that. So think about how many times I know for my children, we're an ecumenical family. That's what we're going to call it. I'm Catholic. My spouse is Baptist. And so we go to both churches. But I can think of so many times when, you know, black churches now, come on, Protestant black churches, it's the youth day. It's the women's day, right? It's the men's day. So you have all of these opportunities for young people to be front and center and uplifted. Like the most powerful thing for me is quarterly when the report cards come out and they do the honoring of the kids who've done well. So at my mm-hmm. spouse's church, it's not just the ones who got A's and B's, it's improvement. So if your grades improve significantly, you get to go stand up in front of the church with your little certificate and your little gift card for $25, right? And that you're going to fight over your wit over your parents because you want to waste it on stuff and your parents want you to save some of it. That's right. You know what I mean? Like, so you get these opportunities to be uplifted and supported those natural cultural supports. And that's in many communities of color. So you lose access to a lot of that 
and a lot of our young people have because of quarantine. And it's having pretty significant impacts on our young people. That is so eye-opening just to hear all those various examples. And you brought me back to Youth Sundays and getting those little checks. Oh, my goodness. But wow, so much that our, that our young people are faced with right now. I'd love to talk a bit about how parents and those that care for youth can connect with their young people. Because Dom and I, before we you know hit record and we went live, we were talking about how sometimes when you talk to a young person, you're like, how was your day? Good. What'd you learn? Nothing. And it's like, well, what else do you say to dig in and get the tea? Because you know, you know, young people always got a little drama going on in that life, right? There's always something with a relationship, somebody boo thing on social media, something like, right? So how do you connect with young people and get them to open up and build that trust so they have someone to talk to? I love that you said boo thing because my daughter has a crush. I'm going to put her business out there. Nobody knows who she is. Girl, her boo thing, she is in love with Jalen Hurts. From the Philadelphia Eagles. Girl, that's her boot thing. She'd be walking by her, oh, yeah, mama, no. that's my boot thing. She <laughs> loves him. Like, she's like obsessed. So when you said boot thing, I had to crack up. So, because I hear that like every day. So I'm putting it in the universe for her. When she gets old enough, we we'll put it out there like that. When she's legal and, and mature, then she can meet her boot thing. There we go. But, <laughs> <laughs> but so for parents, one th- I'll teach you one quick thing. I always teach this to my patients. I tell parents, don't ever say to kids, it's not, it's not bad. It's just that you're going to get a yes or no answer. Ask the question in a way that they can't give you a yes or no answer. So what I say, and I do this with my own children back in the day, like in the before times when we would pick them up from school or drop them off at school, I would say, tell me one good thing that happened in your day today, or tell me one bad thing that happened in your day today. Most of the time I made them answer both. And I don't know, it's not an acceptable answer, but guess what? Yes and no are not acceptable, reasonable, logical answers to that question. So if nothing else, you're making them, you're forcing them to think. So that's one thing is ask these kind of open-ended questions that they can't just give you a yes or no answer. I think the second thing is before the child is 13, 14 and turns into, you know, like they have that show Big Mouth where it's like the hormone monsters is up before the hormone monsters jump on them and they like think you're the dumbest person in the world until they go to college or leave your house and then realize you were really smart or that you just got all this knowledge just like that. I think what you it's important to build connections and build open lines of communication very early on. So that looks like the adults in your life, we as adults have to model for our young people what this open communication looks like. Look, some people are independent parents, which is what one of my patients taught me, she said, don't call me no single parent, call me independent. So that's what I say, independent parents, but you have a support group, right? So my godchild was raised by an independent parent. My girlfriend had lots of people in her circle. One of her best girlfriends, one of her line sisters, and she basically helped raise my goddaughter with my girlfriend. And so making sure that, you know, the child sees you and the people you're close to have open, healthy ways of communicating, even when you're angry demonstrating how to fight fair, how to have a healthy fight that leads towards something good, how to take a break and step away if it gets too heated. All of these are things that we want to be modeling for young people so that they understand what kind of person we are and how we value communication. Because I I do feel like communication is a primary foundation of our relationships. If you can't communicate, you know, you're just going to be in trouble. So those are some of the things that I tell parents. And then I tell parents, you know, Stop trying to fix everything for the children. And the, and the way that I make it make sense for parents is I say, look, 
besides the fact that I'm a parent, because before I had kids, they would look at me side eye like, child, you ain't got no kids, shut up. So now that I have kids, I can say it. But what I say to them is I really want you to always be thinking about what might the long-term impact of my behavior now be on my child? Now, when you mad, you're not necessarily thinking like that, but you always want to be sort of modeling and thinking through, if I do this or say this, or I don't know, engage in this behavior with my kid today, what impact is it going to have my, on my kid in the future? And then what would I want my child to do if this was my grandbaby or my niece or my nephew, or would I want another person speaking to my child the way that I'm about to speak to my child. So if you can sort of take yourself out of the situation for a second, you learn better ways to communicate. And the final thing is just this thought about fixing things. If you fix it for your child, whatever it is, you are robbing that child of the opportunity to develop that life skill. And every time I say that to a parent, they burst into tears. They're like, oh, I never thought about it like that. So yeah, so you can't fix it because if you fix it now, when the situation comes back up, which it inevitably will, they're not going to be equipped to fix it then. So allow them the space to figure some of this stuff out. Oh, yes. You are dropping all of the knowledge. And, and I love, love, love how you are making it so easy to understand, right? I think that one of the things, and I know I experience this sometimes myself, that it's hard when we are steeped in the scientific and academic jargon to put it in terms that everybody can understand. Because as you were explaining, you know, I was like, oh yeah, this is simply, this is, this is about development. Like this is lifespan development. I understand adolescent development. But you didn't use those terms at all. And I love that. I love that because someone can hear that. Someone may hear me say adolescent development and then their eyes roll in the back of their head and then they zone out and they stop listening. And they're like, Dr. Dime, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. And then they don't soak in the information. And what we want them to do is to be able to soak in the information. So I, I love that. I love how you are breaking this down. And so I think my next question is for our parents who are sitting there and like they figured out how to have those conversations with their kids. And it feels like they've got a good handle on things. And then the next thing you know, they're getting a phone call from school because their child is exhibiting some type of behavior that the school feels is problematic, right? But what we generally know means that the child may be having some anxiety, some depression, having normal responses to the systematic issues that are taking place at school. What would you say to parents in terms of navigating those situations, but then also how to identify when there are some changes that need addressing that it's not like, OK, I'm going to let you fix it to develop the life skill. This is when I step in as your parent to really assist. That's a wonderful question, Doc. And I think for me, really, what it comes down to is really trying to strike a balance between I think just as you were saying, there's a there's a point at which I need to let my child manage and handle some of this on his, her or their own. Then there's a point at which I need to intervene. And so 
I always come back to, that's why I say communication is the foundation of a healthy relationship. Because if you don't have open lines of communication with your child, you don't really have a way of assessing when things are sort of veering off the path, right? Because, you know, like you just, you don't have any really anything to calibrate against. So you always want to be trying to calibrate. And what I always, my barometer for my kids is always, same thing I share with parents, I'm paying attention every every day. But you know, this is what we do. Like, so when you study behavior, you're always looking at it, right? If you study development, you're always looking at it. If you're a physician and you know something about, you know, you know, aspects of physical health, you're always paying attention, right? If you're like an orthopedist, you're watching how people walk, what's their gait look like, right? Because that's the stuff that you know. So I think what we have to do as parents is use the knowledge that we have to make accurate and regular, right? It's on the fly. They don't know you doing it. Assessments and evaluations of our kids so you can establish what I call a baseline. And people who know me have heard me speak. I'm always talking about know your baseline. As parents, we have to know our children's baseline. So if you have a child who is generally pretty quiet and reserved and you see them become sort of withdrawn, well, you need to be able to calibrate to distinguish between quiet and reserved versus like fully withdrawn. So an example of that might be normally they come home from school and they just need a little bit of quiet time. You know, some people are like that. Don't talk to me. Don't bother me. Leave me alone. I just need like to clear my head. My spouse is like that before I can engage you. So they got to build up their reserves of outward energy before they can engage people. Well, if you have a child like that and they're coming home from school, let's say they're in elementary school, like a fifth or sixth grader, and they normally get their little 30 minutes and you notice that that period of time starts getting longer and longer and longer such that the kid disappears from the time they get home until it's time to eat dinner. And it's like three hours. Okay. Well, you know, you need to intervene. You need to do something. So I think if we don't pay enough attention, that's sometimes where we get caught up because we're so busy being parents and we got to work to put food on the table. You know how parents told us, child, I, my job is putting a roof over your head and putting food in your mouth, put clothes on your back. I ain't got time for none of that other stuff. Right. But I think Period. we have to work on, right. I grew up with a Southern mama. She's from Mississippi. And so it, we have to work on making sure that we're attending to and always watching. I'm not saying stalk your kids. I'm saying you got to do some of this stuff on the slide so they don't know. But if you establish a baseline for your child's behavior, then you have a sense of when you need to intervene, number one. And two, if the kid that that school is describing, right, school to prison pipeline, we ain't going to forget that now. And then, Doc, you also talked about, we know about anxiety, depression, trauma exposure, some of these other things. and at school. Sometimes if they're not culturally competent, all of that becomes conduct disorder. All of that becomes disruptive behavior disorder. Like it doesn't matter that it's anxiety, boredom, depression, you know, trauma exposure, the after effect. None of that matters. It's like, oh, well, I just I can't deal with so and so. You need to come get him. You need to come get her. So we have to be aware of who our child is. And raising my hand. I've had to spend a lot of time up at school getting folks straight. I'm I'm the first one. I will be up at school in a minute. My kids know. And that's the final thing I'll say. Your children need to know that you have their back so that they are not afraid to come home and tell you this teacher. You know, I think this teacher is a little sexist. I think this teacher is a little racist. I think this teacher is a little homophobic or my environment doesn't feel safe. But again, it comes back to communication. So we got to pay attention just to summarize. We have to know our children's baseline, which means we have to attend to them. We have to be observant 
And we also have to use all of that knowledge to really calibrate against what we're hearing when we're hearing reports from school. And finally, our children always need to know that we have their back and they should never be afraid to come tell us stuff because the, our first response is not going to be, what the hell you do? No, our first response is going to be, I'm listening. I'm going to be quiet. I'm not happy right now because this report I got, but I'm going to need you to explain and break down this situation. And you'd be surprised at how much stress it eliminates when you let that kid walk you through what happened. Because I'm telling you with mine, sometimes the teacher was fussing at everybody, but your kid is like, well, she was just fussing at me. She raised. I'm like, baby, who was she looking at? Well, she was looking at so-and-so. Okay, baby, she wasn't talking to you. She was talking to everybody. So you need to be able to calibrate. And sometimes it's not always like that, but just being able to calibrate those kinds of ways. That's what those are the things that I personally find helpful. That is so powerful and definitely so helpful. And it's nice to know that we're in this age where parents are being encouraged to just build a relationship. That's so important. It sounds like everything goes back to the foundational relationship and communication. Like you said, back in the day, things may have been a little different for some of us. Because I remember times, Dom, you can probably relate to this too. Where, you know, your parent is like, come and tell me everything or tell me what's going on. And you tell them and it's like, well, dang, now I'm in trouble. I'm getting smacked upside the head. You know what I mean? So what I do want to ask you about is there's this article that talks about how African-American teens face mental health crisis, but are less likely to get treatment than their white counterparts. And it says that now suicide is the leading cause of death among black children ages 10 to 19. And so when we talk about Helping your child, one, having a conversation with your child about mental health, but then also helping them cope, whether it's the time that we're in now or just in general, what does that look like? Supporting them with those mental health needs and having those potentially difficult conversations. Absolutely. So that to me, it really brings a lot of the conversation that we've been having prior to now really does bring it full circle because we don't really know why we have these this skyrocketing rate of suicidal ideation attempts and completions among within that age group. These are babies, right? A 10 year old is a baby. They shouldn't be, you know, in the ideal world, they would never consider or contemplate suicide. I think, think about that nine-year-old girl, fools, I'm just going to say it, pepper spray. A nine-year-old, that's a baby. I don't care what she was doing. If she ain't six foot two and 250 pounds, you can find another way to restrain a daggone nine-year-old child. That's horrifying. That child is traumatized, right? And that's going to take years to undo that. So I think when we have these experiences like the adultification of Black children, we're going to keep it real. People see a 12-year-old Black girl or Black boy, they might as well be grown. The videos we've seen of what they call them, school safety patrol, not safety patrol, but school resource officers, basically police in schools, body slamming these kids. Like I watched one a couple of weeks ago and I just, I had to turn it off because it made my heart hurt. He, the child hit her head and she was unconscious. So like, if that's how you look at black children, that's how we're going to engage black children, which is basically how many black adults are engaged. And that's not right. Latinx children too, I, I will add. So I think some of it is really about, we fail to account for racism, sexism, discrimination in general, racial trauma, exposure to racial traumas that our young children who are Black face. And because we don't account for that, we're not trying to put things in place to address those things. And so if nobody's talking to our children about or doing things like preventing them from sitting in front of the TV and watching the news while the police officer's knee is in George Floyd's neck, 
You don't need your 10, 11, 12, 13 year old. They don't need to see that. Right. And, you know, I will argue with anybody about that. And people will say, oh, well, they need to be informed. OK, but you can have a conversation. They don't need to watch that. Right. And so there's data. There's literature. I was just seeing I just saw something today from an article or story in NPR. I think it was Michelle Norris who was talking about or repeating or sharing the literature on how watching these horrible things happen to black and brown people in the news, what kinds of mental health, negative mental health impacts that has on black people. We call that vicarious trauma. You ain't got to be the one getting hit for it to traumatize you. So I think there's something about the, the way in which we fail to address the racial trauma that even our young baby, right? I just said a nine-year-old girl are experiencing that prevents us from being able to try to build the kind of supports around these children to help them manage all the negative downstream effects that come from racial trauma. I mean, let's be honest. We live in a society where so much of your life experience, we talk, we call it social determinants of health. These social things around you are determined in part, not by your race. I want to be clear, but by how people respond to your race. I love being black. I can't, this don't come off. Right. And so it's not about they did that because I'm black. No, they did that because they're racist. They did that because they have, they feel a certain way about black and brown people. So they can change their behavior. I can't change who I am. So I don't own that. And I think because we don't teach our children enough about these kinds of, of ways of reframing, protecting them without exposing them to some of these things, and then trying to address the trauma after it's happened. And also not talking about mental health, right? Like, the only way a lot of our communities talk about it, I'm talking about all of our communities of color, it's a dichotomy. You crazy, which I tell my kids, we don't say in my house, unless you talk about somebody like funny or hilarious or something like that, but you don't call people with mental illness crazy or you're saying like, like there's no in between or this saying, I have to say it when people say, ooh, child, I'm too blessed to be stressed. Don't say that because it's creating a dichotomy between either you love God and you don't have no stress. Or if you got stressed, that means you don't love Jesus. No, it doesn't. Or you don't love Allah or you don't love whoever you worship. That doesn't mean that. It means that you're struggling with something and your faith should be big enough that it can account for you being able to go see somebody and work through it. In addition to going to see your imam or your pastor or whoever your faith leader is. So I think these are some of the things that are impacting our young people that I don't think as researchers, let me say that we're doing a, a good enough job of trying to account for. And then for the rest of us, maybe we're not doing everything we can to try to limit some of those negative impacts on our children. Oh, yes. I, I love the reframe. You know, I, I, I really appreciate that, that piece around not saying it happened to me because I'm black. But acknowledging that, no, it's because they're racist. Your racial identity is a beautiful thing. Being black, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Like, ne'er no nothing in the world. I love Come being on black. Now. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and yes, any negative thing that happens to me is rooted in white supremacy. Point Amen. blank, period. Amen. And saying that allows me to, one, put the onus on the person who's actually committing the offense in the first place and allows me to continue to be rooted in pride in who I am. 
Amen. That's it. That's it. That's that's it. I can only imagine that these are the types of conversations that are taking place with the youth that you're working with. So can you tell us about the Acoma Project and Couched in Color podcast and all of the amazing projects you have going on to work with our youth? So first I'll say I received it. You describing it with those nice superlatives and adjectives. I'm going to receive that and I'm going to hold space and I'm going to hold that. I do feel like we as Black people, as Black women in particular, it's like, oh, girl, I just did it. Like when somebody tell you your hair look good, because, you know, like Amanda Seal says, when sisters go out the house, we ain't dressing for nobody but other sisters. Like, come on, polka dots, right? Like, that's really how you out, you want sisters to acknowledge you, because that's a reflection of each other. And so I just want to acknowledge and, and hold space for you saying those nice things about what I'm doing. And so for me, the podcast and the ACOMA Project, so let me tell you the acronym, because I'm going to bring it all the way home. When I started, the acronym stood for African-American, right? Our people, African-American knowledge optimized for mindfully healthy adolescents. And it was just a really long-winded way of saying there's strength in my culture. There's strength in the culture, cultures of the people of the African diaspora. And we're going to build on that to extend it out to everybody. That's really the goal. And so now we just say the acronym. In the middle of the acronym, the O is a heart which comes from the West African Adinkra symbol. That's Akuma with one A in the front, which is really, it's not about tolerance. It's more about what can I hold? How much can I hold in my heart? And the concept, the way I interpret it is really about bringing in all those good things and holding space for those good things right at my center, at my core. And so for me, a coma is really about what can I do to make every little kid I encounter, every teenager, every young adult, even grown folks, I say young at heart, to make them feel that there's a light in them. The thing I'm always saying to people, I say it on my Instagram page, I say it everywhere. You are valuable simply because you exist. I have this thing that I do every Wednesday on my Instagram page where I call it mental health mantras for marginalized people. And I'm always trying to promote for people. The one I did today was about even when you're tired, you're still here. I got that from my dad. You can be upset or have any kind of negative emotion, but you're still here. We get to be with you. We get to enjoy your company. We get to see your beautiful face. We get to hear your lovely voice. And that's a gift. So that's what I'm always trying to communicate through the podcast, through the work that we do at Acoma. I just want everybody to feel like there is space for them with me. Right. And I'll say if if a lot of times I'll say, If you feel like, I know I can't physically see you, but if you're listening to me and you're watching me, whether you see me on TV or you hear my voice on a wonderful podcast like this, or you see me on my Instagram page, I want you to know that theoretically and sort of metaphysically, I see you. Even if I don't physically see you, I see you. I understand your experience. Maybe I don't know all of it, but I understand a part of it. I know what some of that pain feels like. I know what some of that struggle feels like. And so I want young people to know they're not alone, right? And that who they are is valuable and that we want to be able to always celebrate that. So if they're feeling like they don't want to be on this earth anymore, which I hope they would never feel, they should know that there's at least one person, Dr. Alfie, who wants them to still be here. So that's really what we're trying to promote with the podcast and with the nonprofit. And with the podcast, the reason is visual. 
and audio is because I want these young people to see the, the diversity and the beauty of all the people who want to help them. So we have Asian American folks, we have Arab Mina folks, we have Native American folks, we have Black folks of the diaspora, we have creatives, we have mental health professionals, we have parents, we try to have all kinds of people, LGBTQ, queer, color folks. We want to make sure that when the young people come watch, they're seeing the full representation of both themselves and the people in this world who potentially could be a help or or a support to them. So incredible. Oh my, I'm like, dang, I wish I wish I was a teenager again so I could tap into these resources. Right. But I'm young at heart. I'm young at heart. Right. <laughs> and Dr. Alfie, at this point, I mean, that was just so inspiring. I do want to say one time for the reframe, because that was a powerful point. I'm going to use that moving forward, not letting someone else define what my blackness means, but that, that was powerful. But at this time, Dr. Alfie, we have to shift up the energy of this interview. All right. And because we recognize, appreciate and celebrate the multifaceted woman, and we believe that it's okay to be classy and ratchet. You can still be elegant and dance to strip club music. We want to invite you to the OU Clatchet segment. So Dr. Alfie, do you take on the challenge? 100%. Let's go. Yes. yes. I we love like it. To hear. So we're just going to dive in with our first question. Not a, not a difficult question, but very easy to kind of ease you into the segment. So this question is, what's one question or topic that you wish people asked you about more often? It can be random. It can be related to your field. But what is that thing that you're like, I wish people asked me about this more? Ooh, that's a great question. I wish people would ask me how they can support my nonprofit and other nonprofits that are similar. I'm always scared to say that to people because I feel like they'd be like, oh, you begging for money. So it's not just about me, but I wish people would ask, what can I do to financially support the work that you and other people like you do? Because people say, oh, how can I help? And I'm not the kind of person who's like, girl, you better give me some money. You better go get some of these other people money. I'm not going to do that. So I don't know. That's just my thing. I'm, I guess I'm like a little anxious about that. Oh, and that's the other thing I do. I am an anxious person, so I like to be like real transparent. But that's the one thing. What what physically, what can I do to support the work that you do and the work that other people like you do? I would say that's one question I don't get asked a lot, but I wish people would ask. Now, before I pass it to Dom, I just thought of a new question. How can people support your nonprofit? <laughs> ah, that's such a good question. I love it. I love it. Ah, I love you, girl. So... They can go to our website at acomaproject.org and they can click the donate button. I don't care if you give us five dollars, right? Five dollars to help somebody that'll buy a candy bar or, you know, like a, I don't know, like a granola bar or something for one of these young people. When we do our event, we have an event coming up that I can tell you about it. That's really briefly at the end. But, you know, any tiny amount helps. And even if you don't want to give it to the Acoma Project, go find somebody to support support this podcast these sisters out here like balling out trying to spread a good word to the people we i really want us to put our money and whatever little teeny resources we have toward these things that are out here uplifting us as black and brown people right some of the other folks out here they got enough we've got to make sure that that what the kind of work that we do is supported so they can go to the acoma project page and donate other folks can do like what they do for you and sponsor the podcast for here. How can they sponsor the podcast financially? So that's what I would say. And thanks for the question. I love it. I love it. All right. So for a little ratchetness, 
I mean, okay, lady, if you're as you're listening, I wish you could see Dr. Alfie because she was already ready for this next question, and she didn't even know what it is. She doesn't even know what it is. Yes. <laughs> twerk or two step? Ooh, girl, twerk. Two step is <laughs> yes. two step is that's too slow, girl. You have drop it, drop it low. Look, I'm look, I'm Jeanette. Drop it like it's hot. Come on now, I know what's up. I used to go to the Essence Festival. I was at yes. the Essence Festival. Yes. Right when it came out. So yeah, drop it like a pot any day of the week. I love it. I love it. Well, we got to follow up with this next question, Dr. Alfie. What song gets you on the dance floor at the club or party? Oh my God. It's so many. But one I really used to love is Party Up. Y'all going to make me lose my mind up in here, up in here. That was my jam. I love that song. Yes, so that, that would get yes. me out there. And then kind of anything by Outkast. Like, if you put some Outkast on, I'm like, I'm going to go off. So I love Outkast. I love it. That makes me yes. miss being on the dance floor, y'all. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. yes. <at> a party. <laughs> All right. One final question. How do you want to be remembered? As somebody who made young people of color, young people with any kind of marginalized identity, grown folks, anybody who's ever felt ostracized, I want to be remembered. It makes me emotional to say it as somebody who cared and made them feel seen. Well, Dr. Alfie, I can say that in this conversation, you have made Terry and I feel seen. And so I just want to express my deepest, deepest appreciation for you blessing cultivating her space with your presence today. Thank you so much. I receive it. And thank you all for the invitation. Thank you for your kindness. And just thank you for even in ratchet questions. I love them questions, girl. Like twerk. Yeah, let's talk about it. You can be all of that, right? I can yes. twerk and I can stand up and give you a lecture about my science. And both of those yes. things are okay. So I appreciate y'all deeply for that. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Alpha. We appreciate you and all that you do for our community, the representation that you provide. And I cannot wait to personally listen to this interview after. So we'd love to just give our listeners more information about you. Where can they find you? What would their next step be as far as connecting with you before we close out? Sure. So thank you again for the question. So the best thing to do is follow my there's so many pages. I'm on Instagram at Dr. Alfie, D-R-A-L-F-I-E-E. I know I said it fast, but you can Google it. I'm the only Alfie out there, Dr. Alfie. They can find me on Twitter. I, you know, Twitter less so. I'm on Twitter kind of regularly. And Twitter need to go and give me that daggone blue check and stop playing because yes. they don't be giving out them blue checks evenly and Come equitably. On. I'm just going right. to put it in the universe. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Come on, let's help I've been waiting to see that on your page. Girl. Wait a minute, how many times I got to tell them people? So, you know, it's like, whatever. But we're going to put it in the universe. We yes. all going to get us a blue check. They can find me on my website at Dr. Alfie. It's D-R-A-L-F-I-E-E.com, DrAlfie.com. And then across all social media, cha- pretty much all social media channels, except Snapchat, because I haven't figured that out yet, but my daughter swears I need to. I'm even on TikTok, believe it or not, um, at Dr. Alfie. But at a coma project, all one word across all social media channels. Also, couched in color pod, all in all one word, not podcast, but pod. Couched in color pod across all social media channels, and I think I said a coma project website. So, two websites and all social media. And thank you for the question. Hey, lady, it's Terry here from Cultivating Her Space. Are you tired of working hard for your money? 
Do you want your business to run smoothly when you're out of office? If you want to learn how to automate your business cash flow and increase your impact and influence, join me for my free workshop at brandwithterry.com. Again, that's brandwithterry.com. My name is spelled T-E-R-R-I. Hope to see you there, lady. Thanks for joining us today. Please note that our show may contain conversations about self-help, advice, self-empowerment, and mental health, but is by no means meant to be a substitute for an ongoing formal relationship with a trained mental health provider. If you or someone you know is in need of mental health care, please visit the Therapy for Black Girls directory, Psychology Today, or contact your insurance provider. If you liked what you heard and want to keep the conversation going, visit our website, cultivatingherspace.com, and be sure to click the Patreon tab to get access to video content, bonuses, and our weekly after show. And before we meet again, repeat after me. I am aligned with my inevitable outcome. We'll see you next week, lady.